Well, now we come on to our special gift section. The contestant is Karl Marx, and the prize this week is a beautiful lounge suite. Oh. Now, Karl has elected to answer questions on the workers' control of factories. So, here we go with question number one. Are you nervous? The development of the industrial proletariat is conditioned by what other development? The development of the industrial uh, bourgeoisie. Yes, yes, it is indeed. You're on your way to your lounge suite, Carl. Question number two. The struggle of class against class is a what struggle? A what struggle? A political struggle. Yes, yes. One final question, Carl, and the beautiful lounge suite will be yours. Are you going to have a go? You're a brave man. Karl Marx, your final question. Who won the cup final in 1949? <laughs> uh, the workers control the means of production. The, the struggle of the urban proletariat. No, it was, in fact, Wolverhampton Wanderers who beat Leicester 3-1. <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to the 16th episode of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. So, we're going to do something a little different for this episode. Basically, because I'm wrapping up my time at the training academy, next Tuesday is going to be the end of virtually all the work I have to do for the training academy. Uh, even though I don't graduate until the 7th, uh, Tuesday is our final exam, plus our last physical exam, and after that, it's just sort of nice-to-know lectures that aren't going to be tested on and practicing for our actual graduation parade. So while I've been gearing up for the end of the training academy, I've just had to accept the fact that I'm not going to have as much time at home as I used to have, at least until I return to my regular duties. So the podcast isn't going to be completed on time, at least until the training academy is over with. So in order to have something released tomorrow, I've decided to break this episode up into two parts. The First part, which you're hearing now, is going to be the typical topical segment of the podcast. And the second part will be the current events plus questions. And if this is a good format, I might actually end up going forward this way. So one instead of having a big episode every two weeks, maybe I'll have a topical episode one week. And then the next week we'll do the questions. And then the next week we'll do the topical episode. And maybe that will be a little bit easier. But we'll see how things go for this experiment. My one worry here is I don't want it to end up like there's two different podcasts, essentially. I like the show as it is, holistically, and I don't want to break it up into two separate identities, but maybe this will be easier for people because I do know some people really like the topical stuff, while other people really like the question and answer and current events stuff. So maybe splitting it up will make it easier for the people who only want to listen to one or the other. But this is all the process of starting a new show, changing things up, trying new things, see what works, see what doesn't, and then eventually we'll have an evolved, cohesive, efficient show. I also want to do another disclaimer for this episode. For this episode, we're going to be talking about Karl Marx. And Karl Marx is a infamous figure throughout history. He elicits a lot of different emotional responses 
depending on the person you talk to. And by and large, the tone of this episode is more positive than negative towards Marx. I personally have an interest in the figure. I have found his works compelling throughout my studies. So I'm a little bit of a geek when it comes to Marx. Plus, I have this natural contrarian attitude where if everybody comes and tells me this person's evil, this person's a villain, I have a natural instinct to say, well, why do people not like them? Maybe I should go learn a little bit more. Maybe they're not so bad after all. Ultimately, what I wanted to do with this episode is paint a holistic picture of Marx, something that wasn't completely negative or completely positive, but rather giving you the information about Marx and then letting you decide where you're going to take it. This episode is going to go to a lot of different places because I have a lot to say about Marx and it was very difficult to decide which angle I was going to approach this topic from and how the message would be delivered. So we're probably going to get a little bit of everything when we're all said and done. So I hope you'll forgive me if the episode's a little disorganized, but without further ado, let's jump right into part one of episode 16, Marx's Manifesto. Well now, with just over a minute left, replay on Tuesday looks absolutely vital, and there's Archimedes, and I think he's had an idea. Eureka! Archimedes out Socrates, Socrates back to Archimedes, Archimedes out to Heraclitus, he beats Hegel, Heraclitus a little flick, here he comes on the far post, Socrates is there, Socrates in, he's in, Socrates has scored, the Greeks are going mad, the Greeks are going mad, Socrates scores, the beautiful cross from Archimedes, the Germans are disputing it, Hegel is arguing that the reality is merely an a priori adjunct of non-naturalistic ethics, Kantify the categorical imperative, is holding that ontologically exists only in the imagination, and Marx is claiming it was offside, but Confucius has answered them with a the final whistle, it's all over, Germany having Charles England's famous midfield trio, Bentham Lockenhobbs in the semi-final, have been beaten by the the subject of today's episode means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To some people, he's a mass murderer, or at least was the instigator in a series of mass murders. To other people, he's a heroic figure whose ideas will usher in a utopia. To other people, he's a guy with great ideas that just don't work out so well when you try and implement them in our everyday lives. And there are some people who just see him as a dead guy who had an epic beard. If you don't know already, the subject of today's episode is Karl Marx, the founder of the ideology we now call communism. And I think for 90% of the population, that's where their knowledge of Karl Marx starts and stops. And communism is rightly associated with a ton of negative baggage. There's mass killings, there's oppressions of freedoms, there's images of workers toiling away in dimly lit factories to fulfill their quotas. But what if I told you that's not what Marx predominantly wrote about? It's really what he's known for, but the overwhelming majority of his work was about history. It was about economics. Depending on how you count them, Karl Marx has a total of 24 books written, and only one of them 
was directly related to communism. And that book itself was tiny in comparison to his other works. For example, his book about the capitalist economic system, Das Kapital, and there are a total of three volumes, although the first one was the only one that was actually published by Marx during his lifetime. The other two were posthumously published by Frederick Engels, his partner. But Das Kapital is a massive tome. I'm talking thousands of pages, the kind of book that if you ever needed to in a pinch could whack somebody over the face with and do serious damage to them. It's a massive, massive book and extraordinarily tedious to read because it's all about economics. Basically, in a series of economic arguments, he tears down the basis of capitalism and shows its weak points, its flaws, its failings. And that was where the majority of his life was spent, was writing economic volumes about capitalism and critiquing capitalism. Communism may be what Marx's life was known for, but it's not what he spent his life doing. The fact is, well, Marx spent a lot of time criticizing capitalism. He didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what would replace it. And it's interesting when you go and read the Communist Manifesto and then compare it to his other works, it seems rushed. It seems less adequately put together. It lacks the intellectual tour de force, if you will, that exists in his other works. And going forward with the rest of the episode today, that's something I want people to keep in mind, is that overall, communism and the communist manifesto is not what he spent most of his time and energy on. I also want to bring up the fact that Karl Marx didn't get to bring his ideas into reality. He merely had the opportunity to write about them, and then it was left to future people to take what he had written and try and bring it together in some type of workable political system. And I understand that's a defense of communism that a lot of people use, is that Karl Marx wasn't the implementer of communism, therefore, real communism has never actually existed. And I definitely do think there's some merit to that argument, because there are a few key points in history and particularly Soviet history, when communism could have gone one of several different ways. People don't realize that even the Bolshevik party itself didn't have a unified idea of what communism would look like in practicality. They had to debate and hash it out, and there were definitely winners and losers in that debate. And we're going to be coming around and talking about those key moments in history later in this podcast. A lot of times, communism is compared to a man-made religion, another comparison that I don't necessarily disagree with. And just like when the major religions of our time were first founded, there was a lot of debate about the tenets and doctrines that would be adhered to by the followers of that religion. You can look back at famous points in history, such as the Council of Nicaea, when Emperor Constantine brought together this great council of priests and bishops and bureaucrats in order to hash out what the tenets 
of Christianity were going to be because everybody had a different idea of what Christianity was going to look like at the time and everybody was kind of following different rituals and having different interpretations of the Bible. And communism had several Council of Nicaea-like moments where different interpretations of communism could have been decided upon and that would have yielded different outcomes. But for now, the point I want to get across is that Marx was not an inherently evil man. And Marxism is not an inherently evil ideology. You can say it's a bad ideology, or a poorly thought out ideology, or a logically inconsistent ideology, but it's not evil. But now, let's talk a little bit about Marx himself. And it's interesting because it's difficult to pin down exactly what Marx is. Is he a philosopher? Because he did speak about philosophy to great extents, as well as he had his own personal philosophy and ideology that he put forward unto the world? Or is he an economist? Because the majority of his work was centered around economic ideas and those ideas were conveyed in a way that most economists would understand. I actually have a book of famous philosophers, and Karl Marx is listed in that book. But I also have a book of famous economists, and Karl Marx is in there as well. Me personally, I see him as more of an economist than a philosopher, but Marx himself, interestingly enough, did not see himself as an economist. He saw himself as a philosopher. In fact, he thought he was the world's best philosopher. And the reason he thought he was the best philosopher was because he was the only philosopher who could cut through all the bullshit. Because when you read a lot of philosophers, it's really like they're writing in some sort of academic haze that you have to sift your way through to find out what their actual point is. It's like they're writing it in a way to purposely confuse you. Marx thought he was the only one who would do away with all that and tell it exactly like it was. Which is funny because when you actually read him, he does have a more straightforward way of explaining things. But the ideas he's talking about are so complicated that you don't understand them anyway. But the best way to explain this is to go back to probably my favorite Monty Python skit, and that's the Philosopher Football skit. For those of you who haven't seen it, stop this podcast and go Google Philosopher's Football Monty Python and watch this skit because it's amazing. The idea is that you have all these philosophers from Germany and Greece facing off against one another in a soccer match, and the philosophers can't figure out what they're supposed to do in the soccer match, so they're all sitting there trying to come up with ideas of what exactly they need to do. Eventually, the Greeks figure out they have to kick the ball and score. So the Greeks score the only goal of the game, and as they score, the Germans dispute the goal. So all the Germans run out and they give an explanation as to why they think the goal shouldn't count. So Hegel comes out and argues that the reality is merely an a priori, non-adjunctive analytic ethics, 
Kant argues that via the categorical imperative, the goal can only exist ontologically in the imagination. And then finally, Marx comes out and argues that the Greeks were offside. Not only is it funny because it shows that he's the only guy that's just going to cut through all the bullshit and give you a legitimate reason as to why the goal shouldn't exist. But it's also funny because the Greeks actually were offside. When you go and watch the video, the goal shouldn't have counted. You know what? At this point, I'm almost certainly going to put the audio from that skit into the podcast, but you should all really go and watch it for yourselves. Anyway, so that's the way Marx viewed himself. As a philosopher, he was driven highly by a previous native German to himself, Hegel. And Hegel's another super interesting philosopher, and he is primarily known for this idea of the Hegelian dialectic, and that's what Marx would draw upon. So, in Hegel's philosophy, the dialectic is this sort of system where upon two objects come into contact with one another, and these objects immediately come into conflict and through this conflict one will absorb the other and move forward however whichever one gets absorbed by the other will become changed by that conflict and changed by that assimilation effectively meaning that you're moving forward with an entirely new entity that takes some of whatever the first object was and some of whatever the second object was. In Hegel's personal philosophy, this dialectic was meant to be a metaphor of how a person discovered themselves. So essentially, your consciousness is this object that's running around the world, coming into contact with all these mysterious things, and through this conflict, and coming into contact with all these mysterious things, you absorb them and move forward to whatever the next conflict is, and you do this throughout your life until eventually, spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin the ending of Hegel's philosophy, eventually you realize that everything is consciousness, and at that point you achieve what Hegel calls absolute knowledge, and you know everything that there is to be known. Yeah, I don't buy it either, but it's definitely an influential philosophy nonetheless. So Marx took this idea of two objects coming into contact with one another and moving forward into the future to represent civilizations instead of individuals. So he took this dialectic and imposed it upon human history. So he saw human history as a series of conflicts between two opposing forces. And then eventually this conflict would end and we would move into a new era of human history. So human civilization began with a conflict between sort of unorganized societies and more sedentary tribes. Through this conflict, we entered out of the primitive era and came into sort of the classical era. And in the classical era, you had sort of empires fighting against barbarians. And then after that conflict was ended, you moved into the landed aristocracy and the age of feudalism. Eventually, a new force would come to oppose the landed aristocracy. 
and those would be the bourgeoisie. And the best way to explain this is essentially that this era before capitalism was a conflict between those who had power which derived from their title or who they were born from versus those who had no power but they had money and they wanted power. So the bourgeoisie really represents the middle and upper classes of business people who throughout time eventually started to accumulate more and more wealth and wanted a bigger say in how society was run. Eventually, the bourgeoisie would win, and we end up with the era of capitalism. And one of the things about capitalism you have to understand, at least in terms of a Marxist perspective, is that Marx doesn't necessarily hate capitalism. He sees it as a necessary state in human progress and development. He just wants to move to the next level, and that's where you end the era of capitalism and move into the era of communism, at least in this dialectic model. And the people who rise up to face off against the bourgeoisie are the proletariat. And the proletariat are the lower middle classes and the lower classes. And you see a pattern of those who wanted power questioning why they didn't have it and coming up with reasons why they should. So in the era of feudalism, these bourgeoisie, these businessmen, were asking themselves why they don't have any influence in society. They have all this wealth, all this power, but they don't have the titles. So they thought they should have a bigger piece of the pie. Move into the era of capitalism, and the proletariat is saying, well, there's a lot more of us than there is of them. We have the numbers, therefore we should be the ones who have the power. And I really do think that is an ongoing battle in our society. The battle of the masses against the wealthy. Or maybe battle's not the right word. The struggle. So eventually, Marx theorized that these proletariat would become tired of being treated like garbage from the bourgeoisie. And as a result, the proletariat would rise up and create a worker state. And this state would basically be essentially a worker dictatorship. And Marx theorized that over time, eventually, the dictatorship would dissolve as apparatuses of government became more and more unnecessary in this communist utopia. And eventually, it would devolve into this direct democracy, almost anarchistic state of affairs. So that's kind of the basic theory of how Marx thought that communism would come about. But the question is, why would the proletariat rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie in the first place? And Marx theorized that's because essentially the workers had become machines rather than humans in the eyes of the bourgeoisie. And as a result, the bourgeoisie would not treat the proletariat with respect or dignity. And at the time, this was very much the case. As Marx lived in the later half of the 19th century, 
and watched the world industrialize. And in these industrial factories of the time, they were not a nice place to work. They were dingy, grimy. Workers often had to work ridiculous shifts 16 hours a day in horrific working conditions. They wouldn't get weekends. They wouldn't get breaks. And you would often have children doing extremely dangerous jobs. So it's not difficult to fathom why the proletariat would get upset in this set of circumstances. And Marx focused in on two major components of this dissatisfaction, the idea of alienation and exploitation. And to imagine this alienation and exploitation, let's use a metaphor. Let's imagine that you're at your parents' house, whether you're living there currently or visiting them, it doesn't matter. You're at your parents' house, and you decide to bake your parents a lovely batch of chocolate chip cookies. And you go through all the effort of pulling out the ingredients, mixing them together, preheating the oven, scooping out the cookies, putting the cookies in, baking them, and then you're feeling good. So you finish up the cookies, you open them, you pull them out, put them on the counter, and then your mom or dad comes by, looks at the cookies, and just scoops up all of them, and then maybe gives you two. And then you look at your parent and say, why did you just do that? Those cookies weren't all for you. And they look back at you and say, ah, yes they were, for I own the means of production. And because you used my stove and my ingredients, I'm entitled to however many of these cookies I want to have. In that moment, how are you going to feel? Well, you're going to feel alienated and exploited. That's pretty much Marxist theory in a nutshell. That's like really the Cliff Notes version of it. But you do what you can with the time that you have. Now, let's bring this podcast back around and talk a little bit about the Soviet history I alluded to earlier. Because it's very difficult to talk about Karl Marx and communism without bringing up the world's most famous communist state. And that is, of course, the Soviet Union. And the beginning of the Soviet Union is one of the most interesting and dynamic times in human history. Because as soon as you have this revolution and after the Civil War, there's this moment when finally the Bolshevik party is in complete control of Russia and they have to ask themselves, what the hell do we do with it? And the Bolshevik party over the course of the Russian Civil War had become more and more militarized. And that was really in order to defeat the forces arrayed against them. So from the Civil War spawns this very militaristic style of government. And if for whatever reason there was no Civil War and the Bolsheviks didn't have to fight a bloody conflict in order to maintain their power, I wonder if that militarism within the Soviet Union would have still existed. But when you dive into the debates that the Bolshevik party had internally, they were quite robust, and there was many different factions. One faction of Bolsheviks argued for single-party rule. They said, we need a strong central government in order to be able to carry out what we need to carry out. Therefore, we shouldn't have any other elections or any other parties participate in the political process. And this statement was very controversial within the Bolshevik party. 
In fact, a large contingent of the party left over this issue because they believed one-party rule was contrary to the very democratic ideals that was set out by Marx and communist theory. They believed all parties should have a say in the political process. Eventually, however, these Bolsheviks were reconciled and one-party rule was instilled pretty much to the end of the Soviet Union. And again, I think it's interesting to ask that what if this other faction of Bolsheviks had actually managed to win the debate. They had managed to overturn that one-party rule. How different would history look if that was the case? And that, to me, is a very possible outcome. There was, of course, rigorous debates about economics, especially after Lenin's death. The Russian economy was failing severely after the Civil War, and the Bolsheviks were having a difficult time in encouraging growth and formulating an economic system. So Lenin instituted this new economic plan to try and bring the Russian state back to some sort of normalcy. However, shortly after Lenin's death, the economic policy debate reopened, and there was two major sides. The first side, Trotsky's side, actually wanted to do away with Lenin's new economic policy. He envisioned a far more revolutionary and extreme economic change, while Lenin's NEP, New Economic Policy, was considered very gradual. On the other hand, you have a, another faction headed up by a fellow by the name of Nikolai Bukharin. And Bukharin was far more right-wing than Trotsky. He advocated a more gradual change. He advocated an opening up of privatized markets and overall a less state-driven economy. Bukharin's side would eventually overtake Trotsky's side and become the dominant faction, resulting in Trotsky's exile and the exile of most of his followers. Bukharin's side won because they had one very key person who was at least pretending to be their ally at the time, and that is the man who would become the next Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin. And Stalin was a very, at the time, underestimated member of the Bolshevik party. Stalin was not seen as a radical ideologue. He was not seen as someone you would use to create communist theory or construct policy. But what he was seen as was an excellent administrator. So he was given the position of secretary within the party, general secretary. And the secretary essentially organized all of the committees, all of the party members, and those committees would end up making important decisions. So Stalin would pack these committees with people who were loyal to him and then would use that power to force out those who didn't agree with him. And I think most people know the story from here on out. Stalin would eventually turn on Bukharin as well and use his political powers to exile all of Bukharin's supporters, leaving him as the sole standing figurehead of the Communist Party. And what Stalin did next simultaneously was exactly what the Soviet Union needed to survive but also would sow the seeds for its eventual destruction. So, through a very violent policy of industrialization, agricultural collectivization, and 
governmental centralization uh, combined with authoritarian control would propel Russia forward in time at a faster rate than any leader had done previously in Russia's history. Through this policy, Stalin would industrialize the Soviet Union, and that is the big component to its survival. The majority of Soviet industry that Stalin's five-year plan would create would be in heavy equipment, machine parts, automotive parts, weapons. And at first, these factories weren't particularly useful or effective. Oftentimes, they would overproduce certain parts that no one else could use, and these parts would just be left to rust outside. But when the Germans invaded, these factories could be very quickly and easily converted into war material factories. And the Russians would be able to turn this industrialization into a powerful engine of production that would dwarf all other countries except for the United States. And without this industrial backbone, I don't think the Soviet Union could have won World War II and survived to see another day. However, the stain of Stalin's inflexible authoritarian control would linger over the Soviet Union until its death. Despite successor leaders' efforts to de-Stalinize the country, that specter of authoritarianism and absolute control would never leave the Soviet Union. And this ultimately was its downfall, because it couldn't be flexible in an ever-changing world that demanded a more flexible and inclusive political institution. The main reason I'm going down this road right now is to illustrate one thing, and that is the history of the Soviet Union could have been very different, and thus our interpretation of communism could have been very different. I want to end this podcast by talking about how Karl Marx relates to us today. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that, in a way, Karl Marx was right. There was a battle between communism and capitalism, or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, however you want to frame it. And eventually, the victor would be capitalism. However, during that conflict with communism, capitalism was forced to change. The capitalism of Marx's day is completely different from the capitalism we have now. It was because of socialist and communist movements that workers' rights and privileges were won. We ended up with an eight-hour workday. We ended up with a 40-hour work week, with weekends, with benefits, with pensions, with unions, with labor laws and standards for workplaces to live up to. So communism has forced capitalism to change in its wake. Another thing that Marx gives us today is his criticisms of capitalism, which by and large are still very accurate and very true. One thing that's really interesting that Marx talked about, and I think is happening now, is he had this theory that eventually capitalism would no longer make its money off of manufacturing goods, that eventually capitalism would be able to make money off of money. And this notion is called the internal contradictions of capital accumulation. Because to Marx, money is the commodity of commodities. Money is essentially valueless. And if you're 
building your economy off something that is essentially valueless, then how will that economy stand if it's not producing goods to fuel its growth? And I feel like this is where we are right now, that the power of manufacturers and industry has declined to a point where it feels like they're almost irrelevant, while the power of finance capital and investors has grown substantially, and their wealth has grown substantially. And we've reached a point where the wealthiest people don't even produce anything anymore. They just use their money to continue to make money. And I certainly agree with Marx here. I don't think this is a stable foundation for us to build our economic system off of. He saw the problem of letting the people who control the money gain too much power in our economy. And this is one of many criticisms that Marx lists and are still relevant today. So if I can give you one thing from this episode, it's that when you look at Karl Marx, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because his theory of what would eventually replace communism turned out to be unworkable or unfeasible or just an overall bad idea, that doesn't mean his criticisms of capitalism should be ignored and go unheeded. Because he identified numerous roadblocks that have confronted us in the past and will confront us in the future. And if we just blindly plow through all those roadblocks, eventually we're going to destroy ourselves. And that's a situation I don't think anybody wants to be in. And with that, we are at the end of the first part of episode 16 of Naples Ultra. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen next. So next, I'm planning to release part two of episode 16, either this coming Wednesday or Thursday, because that's after all the work for my training class is over and I can finally start to focus on some other things in my life. So if you weren't able to get in your question for this podcast, don't worry, you have a little extension. And if you have anything to say, any comments, queries, feedback, criticisms, what have you, please send it to my email, which is spencer at npupodcast.com, or hit us up on Twitter. Our handle is at npupodcast. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this part of the 16th episode of Day Plus Ultra, and I'll see you all in a few days for part two. Until then, you guys take care.